Live by Live has all of your favorite music, and you can listen for free. Whether you hit play on one of our hundreds of curated music stations or create your own custom artist radio station, you'll find the music you love on Live by Live. Visit LiveXLive.com or search LiveXLive in the App Store or Google Play and listen for free now. Guys, before we continue with part two of our review of Los Poyos Hermanos and our interview with Chef Kenji Lopez, all please, if you don't mind taking 30 seconds to 60 seconds, that's all you need to rate and review us on iTunes. Just 30 to 60 seconds of your time is the biggest gift you can give us on iTunes. Faden? Cut to. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. Night. Action! Guys, welcome to Restaurant Fiction. My name is Monis Rose, the host of Restaurant Fiction. What is Restaurant Fiction? Well, it is the podcast that reviews every single fictional restaurant, bar, and club in TV and film. This is the continuation with our interview with Kenji Lopez-Alt, the acclaimed chef and cookbook writer and also owner of Worst Hall in San Mateo. Well, before we begin part two, the continuation, I actually wanted to drive and meet Kenji all the way in San Mateo that I also wanted to eat at Worst Hall. That was coming from Santa Rosa, a little bit about an hour and a half, maybe north of Oakland. And on my way back, I had to endure all of that San Francisco, Oakland traffic. But I thought to myself, no, this worst haul, Kenji's restaurant is going to be worth it. And when I actually went into Worst Hall, I did a little surveillance of the area, and the normal restaurant was not in operation. There was some kind of private party, meaning there was like a check-in table, and there were, um, it was shoulder to shoulder with people in formal business attire. Seemed like a well put together white collar crew, whether they be dermatologists, whether they be. Uh, you know, psychologists, what have you. Anyway, this is not the normal restaurant. It was a private event. And yes, I could have very well just counted my losses and went back to the airport. But no, no, no. I wanted to go to Worst Hall. I wanted to eat the food. And there was no one at the check-in table. So what did I do? Yes, I crashed whatever party was at Worst Hall. I went to the buffet line. Say a little note here. I don't know what the actual menu is. I've never had the actual menu. I don't know if the buffet that was featured was the real food, the everyday food that Worst Hall features or not. But I needed to experience some kind of food at this worst hall. So in my t-shirt, in my graphic t-shirt and shorts and flip-flops, yes, a total 180 from the actual wardrobe of the clientele in this private party. I snuck up to the buffet line. I had some pretzel bites. I had Kenji's chicken or his little... uh, you know, popcorn chicken, if you will. I had two kinds of sausages, and I had their brownies with whipped cream and caramel sauce, and I sat in the back 
trying to go unnoticed. And, you know, I am relatively a bigger guy, but for whatever reason, I did hide in plain sight pretty well until the wait staff cleared my plate. And at that point, I wanted to yell, being like, shush, I don't want to be noticed. Luckily, uh, no one caused any kind of alarm. And I ate, I smiled, and I walked out briskly. I hope no one did see me. Anyway, that was my worst haul, number one experience. Yes, us at Restaurant Fiction do have to go back to Kenji's restaurant and actually experience the restaurant in all of its glory during a normal business day. Anyway, without further ado, this is the rest of our interview with Kenji Lopez-Alt, the owner of Worst Hall in San Mateo. What are you ordering at Los Pollos Hermanos? If it was just me, I would probably order the rotisserie chicken. They did like small orders of curly fries. I would try them just because they're like being promoted, but um, I wouldn't really go out of my ways to get curly fries. Like I don't, I don't, you know, I like curly fries well enough, but curly fries are kind of curly fries, you know. So for myself, I would order the rotisserie chicken, uh, rice and beans and tortillas, some sauce. Uh, for the sake of my wife, I would order the fried chicken. And for the sake of just general knowledge and being in the know, I would order the curly fries and whatever else looks interesting on the menu. At the very beginning, when we started this episode with Los Pollos Manos, there is like a story behind it. Well, when you're going about creating, uh, say, your own Los Pollos Manos or any kind of food that you're actually creating, how important is the story behind any food that you create? I think the story is always important, but that's not to say that the story has to be a story of tradition or a long history. You know, this the story of a food could be as modern as, you know, hey, here's a Silicon Valley startup that built a, a food truck that serves hamburgers made by a robot, you know, and like that in and of itself, I think, makes the that hamburger interesting. It gives that hamburger an interesting story, despite the fact that it completely ignores, you know, the history of the hamburger. At one end, you know, you can go to a restaurant like Louis Lunch, arguably the first restaurant that served a hamburger in the U.S., you know, despite the food being so-so there, it's interesting and there's an interesting story behind it. So that in and of itself makes it worth going to. And at the same time, going to a, a truck that makes burgers with a robot, that is interesting too. So, you know, sometimes in the, the story of a food can entirely eclipse the actual quality of the food. Gotcha. All right, so moving on, you're writing a children's book. With this children's book, you have said that you have food elements in it. How do you service both your characters and the food? The story of the book is this girl who believes that when something is the best, you know, that there's only one best and when something is the best, it's the best. And therefore, like, you should want it over all other things all the time. This is a view that, you know, I think, you know, I sometimes had this growing up. Um, I, you know, I sometimes had it, have it as, a, as an adult or like I sometimes see it as an adult and other people. It's like, why would you eat this when you could be eating something better? And so the basic premise of the book is this girl finding out and discovering that it's okay to have like multiple bests and for something to be the best at this or to be the best at that or to be the best at this time or to be just arbitrarily the best right now because I feel like it. And it's done through the framework of her discovering um, food. Dude, that's awesome. Then what is the dish or the meal that takes you back to your own childhood? Probably New York pizza or <laughs> New York pizza or my mom's dumplings. I have very, very strong memories of eating pizza growing up, you know, it's like, I distinctly remember days when like my mom would pick me up from school and we would go and we would stop and get a slice of pizza. And I, you know, I remember like the old wings poster on the wall of pizza town Two, and pulling my face up over the counter to order my pepperoni slice and garlic knots and like seeing that wings poster and having no idea what the hell 
Wings was, despite the fact that I grew up like basically only listening to the Beatles. I remember a night when we went out and picked up pizza and my mom left it on the roof of the car and drove home and the pizza was gone when we got home. I remember the first day that I ate two full slices of pepperoni pizza by myself. My dad came home and I was like really proud and I told my dad about how I ate two full slices of pepperoni pizza by myself. And then I ate my dad's crust after that. So I just had these like very sort of strong childhood memories growing up eating pizza. (laughs) That is fantastic. Now, obviously with writing, uh, voice is important. How do you put your voice into writing? And also, how do you put your voice into food? It's going to sound cliche, but it's really just finding your voice. It's like figuring out what it is that you are interested in and what is it that like puts passion in your voice and makes you Um, and inspires you, you know, and brings out that voice in you. I always say that when I write a story, I try to make it come off as if I discovered something really exciting and I really, really want to tell my friends about it. That's sort of what the tone I try and strike in my stories. So it really, for me, it was a matter of actually meeting Ed Levine, who was the um, the founder of Serious Eats. I had been writing a few freelance stories for him. I had been a writer and an editor at Cook's Illustrated, um, and I was still sort of freelancing for them, but I was looking for something. And Ed, Um, I had lunch with him one day, um, the first time I ever met him, and he said to me, you know, Kenji, like, you should write a column about science for home cooking. And I was like, you know, that is like exactly what I should do. You just like basically gave me my dream job. Here's this guy, Ed, who I just met in person, and he told me what I was born to do. You know, like I was like, oh, shit, you know, like that is what I should do. I should write a food science column because those are the two things I was most interested, most passionate about, food, cooking, and technique, and science. Luckily, it turned out that there were readers who were interested in it also. You know, and so when you're able to find your passion, find your voice in that way, and whether it's provided by someone else or whether you find it yourself, and then when you get lucky enough that it turns out other people also share that interest, you know, that's how you can make a career out of it. And obviously, it's it's difficult, and that's not to say every single person is going to be able to find that, but the more you put yourself out there and the more you write um, and the more you work and the more people you meet and the more you talk to people and the more you just practice um, and lay out connections. Oh, I'm sorry. That's my dog barking. Oh, that's fine. You can bark. Sorry, that's, a, that's a mail truck. <laughs> dog barking at the mail truck. Anyhow, the more connections and the more you, and the more work you put into it, the more likely you are to find that voice. It's like playing hide and seek. And it's just like the more places you look, the more work you put into finding it, the more likely are you going to find it. And some people, maybe you get lucky and it is in the first place you look and, and lucky you. For me, it took between the cooking and the writing, it took over a decade of basically just like really poorly paid jobs that I wasn't sure were going to lead anywhere um, between between cooking at restaurants and writing, because neither of those jobs have extremely long, extremely good long-term job prospects, you know, career prospects. And so I was doing both those things for a long, 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 long time before I finally sort of found them. So, you know, that, that's sort of my advice. Just if you're really passionate about it and you think you're going to find that voice and you think you um, and it's think you think it's somewhere in there and you're willing to sort of take that risk, then my only advice is really just to practice and keep doing it until you discover what it is that you were born to do. Excellent. Now, um, the writer and the chef are creative fields. How do you stay creative and not plateau? When I was writing these recipes, I was legitimately, honestly thinking about, all right, so what is something about this? I don't know. What? How can I improve it? What can I do here? What can I test? And going into it with a very open mind and actually doing all these tests and sort of seeing where 
things could be improved or where things where I would might have been doing things wrong, et cetera. Um, and so constantly challenging yourself to learn is a way to make sure that you're constantly thinking and constantly processing new thoughts and making new connections. And those are the kinds of things that lead to creativity. So that can come in multiple forms. It could be something like disengaging yourself from your own work, um, forgetting about writing that story and instead going and reading a lot, uh, reading a lot of other people's work, watching some videos. And it doesn't even have to be in your own specific field. You know, like sometimes I'll pull out like a Douglas Adams novel or like I'll pull out like some Kurt Vonnegut. I'll read something that I think is just funny and that I like the tone of and read it for an hour or two and sort of get into the mood again and sort of think about what it is that makes writing funny to me. As far as cooking goes, a lot of it is listening to people around you. I try very, very hard to involve my partners and my sous chef and my cooks as much as possible to experiment and to try new things. You know, like right now my sous chef is coming up with sausage recipe ideas. So like basically my only involvement in that is going and tasting them, giving them feedback, giving them some feedback and giving some more ideas. You know, when ideas come from two people, like you get more ideas when, when they just come from one. You know, a sharing culture, I think, makes for a much better creative environment where everybody wins because creativity comes from the interaction and the interchange of ideas, whether it's within your own head, you know, whether it's pulling different parts of your own knowledge and sticking them together in new ways, or whether it's putting together the ideas of multiple people and sort of seeing how they interact in new ways. To me, that's what creativity is and that's where it really comes from. Los Pollos Hermanos, yes, it does have to do with the story, but also it adds some comedic relief to the show. So can you give me either a very tense restaurant experience in your own life, or it can be on the comedy side, like a very crazy, comedic, silly restaurant experience. This was a big sort of entire comedy of errors. One of my very first high-end restaurant jobs, and I was sort of like deer in headlights, like, what the hell is going on? Like the, just the intensity level, the shift between um, the restaurants, types of restaurants that I've been used to and um, the demand of a really sort of um, high-end restaurant was um, such a shock for me, such a change. Um, and so for the first couple of weeks, you know, it was real deer in headlights fear, constantly telling myself, right, right, I have to think faster. I have to think on my feet. I have to move faster. I, I constantly have to be one step ahead of what's going on. Like if there are problems, solve them myself. Don't wait for someone else to do them, et cetera. And so I was on the pasta station one day and we were cooking gnocchi. What happened was we decided that day, all right, you know, today we're going to challenge ourselves. We're going to make the lightest gnocchi we have ever made. You know, the way to make the gnocchi lighter is to use less flour and more potato. And so we did that and we're like, right, these gnocchi are going to be awesome. They're going to be awesome. And then when service comes around and we start cooking them in the pasta machine, they completely disintegrate. They just fall apart. Didn't have enough flour in them. And so for First of all, like we have to start making gnocchi on the fly. So taking the old gnocchi, breaking them apart, kneading in a little bit of extra flour, shaping them, rolling them directly into the pasta machine. So with every order of gnocchi that came in, we'd have to make, you know, 20, 30 gnocchi, um, which is trouble. And meanwhile, the original gnocchi that I'd broken down had completely dissolved into the water. And if you don't know, a pasta machine is basically like maybe 20 gallon tank that has a big flame underneath it boils and circulates water around and it has baskets that dip into it. So that machine by the end of service was completely clogged. I'm sorry, it had actually been completely clogged by the middle of service. Um, so right, right around like 1 p.m. lunch service, it completely clogged so the machine wasn't circulating anymore. Thinking on my feet, already being rushed and being like, all right, this is my moment to shine. I was like, I know where there's a plunger. And I ran to the bathroom, grabbed a plunger, stuck it into the pasta machine and was like plunging the drain pipe on the pasta machine as like I looked up and I see my chef just like 
staring at me completely horrified because obviously, you know, that, that plunger had come to the bathroom and I just stuck it into the kitchen's pasta machine in the middle of lunch service. I'm so, so shocked I didn't get fired. You know, it was a Northern Italian restaurant. We were known for our pasta. So we immediately had to cancel all pasta orders and 86 pasta for about 15 minutes while um, another cook got like a huge pot of water boiling on the stovetop um, and we could start cooking pasta again. And meanwhile, I had to spend like five hours completely dismantling that machine, scrubbing down, sanitizing um, every single surface on it. You know, it was just like an utterly embarrassing, complete disaster. You know, and in retrospect, I think very funny story. These days, um, I think I'm much better at um, managing my sort of train of thoughts and managing my pace to, to a point where I make sure I don't make those kinds of dumb mistakes. I learned that lesson pretty quickly. Wow. Wow. That's that's what hell of a story, man. That was <laughs> Oh my gosh. Do you at least have compassion just in case you do have an employee that does have a similar kind of plunger experience? Oh, absolutely. And you know, like one of our policies is like, if someone does something stupid, don't call them out. Generally, no yelling and no cursing in the kitchen. And the other one is that if someone makes a big mistake, correct it at the moment as far as like just um, practically getting things fixed so that we can continue with service. But don't dress the person down. Don't really go into the details of what went wrong, what mistakes the person made. Don't do any of that in front of other people um, at the moment. Wait until after service, call them aside individually and talk with them. That way, you know, you avoid the sort of public humiliation. And then no matter how bad the mistake is, like you don't make fun of people for it because yeah, like everybody, even really smart people um, and definitely people who are working hard and are have their head down and are just trying to get the job done. Like you're, you're just, you're bound to make mistakes sometimes. So there's no reason people need to be humiliated for those inevitable mistakes. What does a Kenji food tour look like in San Mateo? And what does one look like in New York? A food tour in San Mateo, we would start in the morning by going to Bachhaus, sourdough and pastries they do, um, and some um, German style bread, pretzels and stuff like that. We would do this all on a weekend so that after that we could go to either the San Mateo Farmer's Market or the Burlingame Farmer's Market. Because, you know, the variety of produce available at the Farmer's Market in California is just mind-blowing especially coming from new york where certain times a year like certain things are diverse and mind-blowing but here it's just like man like you can go there any time of year and find really cool interesting things um so we would definitely go to a farmer's market i think we'd probably stop in at my restaurant so you could try a couple things that i happen to like there we would probably go get sushi at dash which is my current favorite sushi um, and sashimi place they import fish from japan on the weekends um, so you can get some really interesting stuff we would get sichuan food particularly the spicy jelly noodles um, and the cold chicken poached with green Sichuan peppercorns at Chef Zhao Bistro on El Camino Royale, which I think is the best Sichuan restaurant in the on the peninsula that I've been to so far. We would probably try to go to this new uh, ramen place, Taishoken, that I have never been to, but a lot of what I like to do is try new places. So if I was doing a tour, I would take you along to a new place so that I could get opinions from new people. So Taishoken is a very old uh, ramen restaurant in Japan that now has uh, many locations, I think several hundred locations in Japan, claim to have invented Tsukeme which is the style of ramen where you have these um, noodles that you dip into a sort of very concentrated sauce. And they opened their very first 
United States locations in San Mateo um, just a couple weeks ago. Oh, you know, we stopped at Pausa for cocktails. Pausa is a new Italian restaurant. They've been around for a couple years now. We would stop at 31st Union for crispy fried pig ears, uh, maybe some more cocktails. And then we would end the night at the Swingin' Door, which is a uh, dive bar that does karaoke four nights a week. So we would go there on probably Saturday night, which is the best weekend karaoke night. Then we would all come back to my place and... um, very quietly, because my daughter will have been asleep by this time. At some point, we would take a break to put, so I could go put my daughter to bed. Um, we would come home very, very quietly, and I will make some kind of midnight snack, and we will enjoy it on my back porch. Wow. I want to I wanna go on that food tour. <laughs> and what about New York? Oh, in New York, it would be pretty much 100% pizza, pizza and bagels. I grew up in New York, and um, I lived in New York for a long time, and then I moved here five years ago to uh, the Bay Area. And the things that I miss most about New York are pizza by the slice, you know, New York-style pizza, a good New York bagel. So we would get a slice at Patsy's in East Harlem. That's the only Patsy's worth, location worth going to. The other ones are all different owners, spinoff. They bought the name, rights to the name, but they have nothing to do with the original Patsy's other than that. Um, I believe it's still one of the few places, maybe the only place in the city where you can get a coal oven slice and they're still like a buck 50, which is crazy. So I would get a slice of pizza at Patsy's. Then I would go down to Prince Street Pizza and get a spicy spring, the square slice with the pepperoni. I would go up to Mama's 2 in the Upper West side and I would get a square slice there. Then I would go to Absolute Bagels in Morningside Heights and I would get maybe a mini everything bagel with cream cheese. I would get it not toasted with cream cheese, which is the way to have a bagel because when a bagel is really fresh and you're buying it from the bakery freshly baked, the textural contrast that you get is between that sort of crispy sort of crackery crust and the um, really dense and chewy inside. So when you toast a fresh bagel, it comes out pretty much the same as a toasted old bagel and a toasted stale bagel. So you kind of lose every all the qualities that the freshness gives it. If it's warm, I get it with butter. Um, hopefully the butter has been sitting in like a deli container next to the chive cream cheese, as it often is, or to the scallions. And so it gets some of that chivey scallion flavor. I think people who've gotten bagels in New York know what I'm talking about. So when your bagel is hot, um, when they're really fresh out of the oven, I get it with, with butter and they slather it on, it kind of melts and it's so good. Um, when the bagels cool down a little bit, then I'll get it with cream cheese, scallion cream cheese, maybe or just regular cream cheese. But anyhow, I would get a Neapolitan style pizza from Motorino, probably their Brussels sprout and pancetta pizza, which is great. I would go to Polly G's Slice Shop in Greenpoint, get a slice of pizza there. I would go to Totono's in Brooklyn, get a whole pizza there, maybe half white, half red. Then I would get a square slice from LMB Spumoni Garden, straying from the pizza and bagels thing. Last time I was in New York, um, my sister and I, uh, we actually did like a one night little tour of New York. Um, We went to Morea and got this sea urchin bone marrow and octopus pasta there that is out of this world good. We went to Uncle Boone's and we got their beetle leaf. They have these little beetle leaf wraps, which are like beetle leaves, which are these sort of aromatic leaves. And inside you wrap these various sort of crispy and crunchy and fermented and dried things. um, And you eat them in one bite. They're really, really delicious. Um, that's a good start, right? That's that's a lot of places, and a few of them are not pizza, I think. That, that's a good start. Kenji, anything else you would like to add? You know, I, I just honestly wish I could be as good a boss as Gus Fring seems to be. <laughs> you know, like, his employees seem to love him, and he seems like a very professional, thorough guy, despite his dark side. 
Absolutely. And where can uh, everyone find you? Yeah, I mean, well, certainly you can you can find me occasionally um, if you're at there at the right time um, at my restaurant, Worst Hall in San Mateo. Otherwise, you can find my writing um, on SeriousEats.com all the time. I and mean, you can find my book, The Food Lab, uh, Better Home Cooking Through Science. It's a New York Times bestseller and it, it's on Amazon. It's on it's I'm sure it's at your local bookstore as well. It's probably even at Costco. It's it's around. It's called The Food Lab. Um, and it's, you know, it's aimed at home cooks who want to um, who've always asked why and want to know why they're cooking things in a certain way or why people why other chefs ask you to tell you to cook things in a certain way you know like why do I salt my meat at this point why am I frying my chicken at this temperature why am I whisking my eggs before adding them to this batter you know all, all those types of questions that you've always had written in the framework of recipes um, recipes that have been very well tested and are um, you know that are guaranteed to work in your home kitchen for you know all kinds of American classics and things that you know uh, home cooks are familiar with so Excellent. Well, and Kenji, if there's ever a TV show you want to talk about, because I know if you just love a new TV show or whatever, you are welcome back anytime. This was an amazing interview, and thank you so much for your time. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. All right, cool. All right, bye, Kenji. All right, bye-bye. Cook two. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar.